Eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. Liberal and progressive frustration, grief and alarm over President Donald Trump's destructive political agenda and behavior have prompted mounting disdain for his supporters and other conservatives. This reaction is contributing to political polarization and unwittingly serving to strengthen Trump's hand as he sows divisiveness and hatred. Our guest today is going to show you how to communicate respectfully passionately and effectively across the political divide without soft-pedaling your beliefs. Thank you so much, Erica Edelson, for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you, Charlie, for having me. Well, Erica's new book is Beyond Contempt, How Liberals Can Communicate Across the Great Divide. Well, Erica is a writer, community activist, and certified powerful, non-defensive communication facilitator. She is a former human rights attorney and has advocated in support of welfare recipients, prisoners, indigenous peoples, immigrants, and environmental activists. Erica has also organized for clean, community-owned energy as part of a a just transition to a local low-carbon economy. Following the 2016 election, she became active in the resistance movement and in left-right dialogue initiatives. Erica's articles have appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle, San Jose Mercury News, Progressive Populist, Truthout, and Alternet. Check out everything on her website at ericaedelson.com. Her last name is spelled E-T-E-L. S-O-N. Well, tell us a bit about where you grew up, and was your family politically active when you were a kid? Um, I grew up in suburban Maryland, which is uh, very blue, was then and, and still is now in a, in a suburb of D.C. So my parents weren't politically active, but we were kind of, you know, in that beltway milieu where there was a lot of focus on what was happening in D.C. Um, and my dad was a labor attorney and eventually a, uh, an administrative law judge for the National Labor Relations Board. So... Um, yeah, I mean, we, we did talk politics, but it was not an activist household that came later for me when I went to college and became politically active there. Talk about some of your work as a human rights attorney. And is there a particular case or two that, that really stuck with you all these years that maybe altered or changed your view of the world? The main thing that I was doing as a human rights attorney was um, I was working with an organization that unfortunately is now defunct called Project Underground. Uh, I guess it's it's gone completely underground now. Um, And that organization was supporting uh, indigenous people around the world who were resisting oil and mining development on their land. Um, So the main case that I was involved with there was a a gold mine, um, a Canadian-owned gold mine that opened up in Peru in the Andes um, with financing from the International Finance Corporation, which is the private lending arm of the World Bank. Um, And this is just, you know, one of many terribly destructive projects that the International Finance Corporation and the World Bank, less so the World Bank now, they've kind of, I think they're starting to move in a more sustainable direction finally, but a lot of those kinds of projects get financed. And the community there um, was really struggling hard to, I mean, ideally get that mine shut down, but that was probably never going to happen, but at least 
to try to get the mine to abide by the environmental and social guidelines that the International Finance Corporation supposedly required but wasn't really enforcing. So I got involved as a lawyer in filing a complaint to the ombuds person office of the International Finance Corporation, um, and that turned into sort of a series of meetings in Washington and mm-hmm. in Peru, um, where the mine came to the table, the IFC came to the table, the community was at the table, and, and I was there. Um, and uh, I wish I could say that the end of that story is that, that that mine shut down and the community is doing great now, but they're still suffering the same kind of um, cyanide and heavy metal contamination that they that they were back then. Well, you say that you became active in the resistance movement following the 2016 election of President Trump. Well, what spurred you into action at that time? And what kinds of things have you been involved in as part of that activism? Well, um, I think the, the thing I was involved in originally was um, it, the indivisible movement. And we have uh, here in the Bay Area where I live, we have a couple different chapters of Indivisible. I don't know. Should, do you think your listeners know what Indivisible is, or should I say something? Yeah, we have the Courageous that. Resistance here in the Coachella Valley that's part of that. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of local chapters, and, and I was involved in those. Um, it kind of became a little bit frustrating quickly with Indivisible, even though it's, you know, it's a fantastic group, and I'm so glad it exists. But being in the Bay Area, where our members of Congress are already um, all Democrats, um, maybe you know not as progressive as all of us would like them to be, but they certainly weren't like you know going along with with the Trump agenda. By and large, there were a few exceptions. I think with Diane Feinstein that we were kind of upset about, but eventually it got to the point where I felt like, oh, you know, I'm kind of tired of calling my member of Congress and telling them to do what they're probably going to do anyway. And I would really love to have more of an impact in parts of the country. Um, where there maybe isn't such a strong resistance movement and they are represented by Republicans who are going along with Trump's agenda. Um, So at that point, I I shifted in a couple different directions. Um, One is that I started um, canvassing in a swing district, kind of in the outer reaches of the Bay Area, a town called Modesto in in California's Central Valley. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were, um, they did have an incumbent, Jeff Denham, who was very much going along voting with Trump 99% of the time. Um, And then he had a a challenger, um, Josh Harden, who ended up beating him in the 2018 midterms. So I was uh, a volunteer canvasser for Working America going going out there, driving out to Modesto about, about a couple hours from here and doing that canvassing work. And that just felt more productive to me. I felt like I was having more of an impact, especially when he won. That's always nice. Um, and then the other direction I started going in was um, I, I – had been studying, like this is going back to before the election, but I had been studying powerful non-defensive communication. And I just started thinking about the ways in which, even though I felt like powerful non-defensive communication was effective in my personal life, that I wasn't really using it as a political activist and in the way that I was thinking and speaking about Trump and and Trump supporters or with Trump and Trump supporters, I was really like kind of violating a lot of the precepts 
about effective communication that I knew, but somehow I was forgetting it. And I was noticing that a lot of my resistance comrades were falling into the same trap um, for lack of knowing a a better way. Well, Erica, you use uh, powerful non-defensive communication in your new book, Beyond Contempt, you employ it. So what is it exactly and how did you learn about it? Sure. Well, powerful non-defensive communication, um, it's a non-adversarial communication method developed by a woman named Sharon Strand Ellison, who has trained a lot of educators and nonprofit and corporate leaders to resolve conflicts by communicating in ways that avoid triggering people's defensiveness. Um, And she's also coached political activists, um, like she worked with the folks, this is going back to the 90s, there was this terrible ballot initiative in Oregon that was going to um, ban gays and lesbians from teaching in public schools, and she worked with the activists on that, and they ended up winning and defeating that measure. Um, And she also coached Barbara Roberts when she was running for governor of Oregon, and she went on to become the first woman governor of Oregon. Um, And what she was teaching them was how to convey their political beliefs with sincerity and passion and compassion across lines of difference um, without denigrating the other person's beliefs in the process. So, like, the basic idea of powerful non-defensive communication is that you try and find out by asking curiosity questions where the other person is coming from. Well, and you and write... then, after you have a sense of that... I'm sorry, but... Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, um, yeah. So, you try and find out where they're coming from, and once you feel like you have some sense of that, then you can share where you're coming from but without trying to convince them that you're right and they're wrong, um, and without implying that they are bad or inferior to you if they don't agree. Well, you write that curiosity is the antidote to contempt. So what, what's so bad about contempt in the first place? And, and how do you ask curiosity questions? Like, give us a, a few examples of that. Okay, well, contempt is... The feeling of contempt is a blend of anger and disgust and superiority. So it's like I'm feeling like I am so disgusted and infuriated with you, Charlie, that I don't want to have anything to do with you other than tell you how bad and wrong you are. So, Charlie, you probably don't feel great when I come at you with that kind of attitude. No. And being on the receiving end of contempt, it it feels really bad and it triggers a huge amount of defensiveness and hostility, much more so even than if someone's just mad at you. I mean, they, they have studied this and done experiments and even like put people under brain scanners. And what they find is that when people feel scorned, the fear center of the brain, the amygdala lights up just in the same way it would light up if they were being attacked by a wild animal. I mean, it sounds irrational, you know, that just like just someone's words and attitude could make people feel like they're being attacked by a tiger, but it does. Um, And so then the amygdala sends out a fight or flight command. We kind of go into that panic mode where we either just want to get away or fight back or kind of freeze up. Um, And at that point, our ability to have empathy, to reflect and reason and learn 
just shuts down because we're totally preoccupied with defending ourselves. Um, And as if that's not all bad enough, the other thing that happens is we start feeling really hostile toward the person who's scorning us, and then we might want to retaliate, and then you kind of get into this contempt spiral where it's just like boomeranging back and forth and escalating. And I think that's very much the position we're in now with the polarization between the right and the left. So what are some examples of, of a curiosity question that you could pose to someone? Um, well, let's see. You know, I think that with beginners, what, what I found the easiest when I was learning um, this method, it, it, it is sometimes hard to come up with questions. So I have a couple pieces of advice. I think the easiest kind of question to get a handle on is something definitional. So when someone you're talking to uses a term, especially if it's kind of an inflammatory term like freeloader, what you can do is ask them what they mean by that term. And, and there's a couple ways to do it. There's, there's the, way I, the way that wouldn't be so great is to be like, oh, well, what do you mean by freeloader, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you, you feel like the kind of the judgment in my voice that right. like, I'm, I'm already pissed off at them for using that term. Um, so another way to say it would be, what does freeloader mean to you? So those kinds of definitional questions, that's like something you can just always have in your pocket and it'll get the other person talking and saying more. And as the other person says more, then other things will arise and you can just kind of go from there. Um, What was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, yeah, the other piece of advice I have. Well, this is this is coming from Sharon Ellison, not not from me. I need to give credit where credit is due. Um, so something I learned from her is, you know, when you when you feel stumped and someone's just saying something and you're like, oh my god, like oh, this is so wrong. I don't even know where to begin. She suggests to pretend that you are either an alien from outer space who's just here just to try and understand things. Mm-hmm. Um, or a six-year-old child who's very innocent and also is just trying to understand and asking a curious question. And the question you can ask yourself is, if I were truly curious right now, what would I want to know? We'll talk about some so of the, I think those, that's a good way in. Talk about some of the tips that you suggest when people are, are speaking their piece. Like uh, you mentioned the, you know, putting the tone in your voice and sort of paying attention to that and avoiding strong hand, ge- hand gestures and facial expressions when you're, you're giving yeah. your feedback, for instance, or transcend partisanship. How do you do that? Yeah, it's really incredible all of the ways in which our nonverbal communication can telegraph um, judgment or anger or kind of just a level of intensity that puts people on the defensive. And I didn't, I didn't understand this at all until I learned about it. And then I started watching for it and watching other people's facial expressions and hand gestures and then seeing what, what that did to me. Um, I mean, even something as subtle as like, um, my husband, when he talks, tends to gesture a lot with his hand, and he kind of does this like little karate chop motion. <laughs> and it's really, I realize now, I'm like, oh my God, you know, it almost, it, it's again, it's like that primal part of our brain, like the fear 
the fear brainstem that interprets it completely irrationally as an attack. It's like, oh, my God, he's karate chopping me. And, I mean, he could be doing that just like talking about, you know, why he likes one kind of apple instead of another, but I'm already like getting defensive and being like, no, that's not right. I like the other kind of apple. Um, so it's really, it's really good to be mindful of our hand gestures, our facial expressions. Um, thing, uh, one of the things that, that people have the most trouble with, including me, is we raise our eyebrows a lot. And I don't know why it does this, but it does. Again, it's, it's a facial expression that tends to make people seeing it feel defensive. So it's great to keep your face really more kind of neutral, to keep your, vo- your voice tone pretty calm. And with questions, um, what Sharon Ellison teaches is to come down at the end of the question. Like normally when we ask a question, we come up at the end. So like if I'm talking with someone um, about family separation at the border, um, you know, normally I would be like, well, what do you hope to, what do you hope separating families at the border will accomplish? Right. I mean, that sounds pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something about that, like leaning into that last word and coming up at the end that for whatever reason, makes people feel defensive. So I'm an, I'm going to try and model coming down at the end of the sen- at the end of the question, although I got to say I'm not great at this and Sharon is always trying to help me do better, <laughs> but I'm a, I'm going to give it a try here so I would say what do you hope separating families at the border will accomplish? Yeah, and even there I kind of leaned a little into the word accomplish. So it's hard, it does take some practice, but it kind of um it just sort of diffuses the energy a little bit and and lets um it, it's a little more disarming. It allows the person to just sort of like reflect um on 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 what they're thinking and feeling. And people might be surprised to hear that one of your tips here in speaking your piece is that you don't have to win. Yeah. And I mean, this was, is such a hard thing for me, especially as a former lawyer, as an activist, as someone who is so upset about everything going on in this country and feel like, you know, the stakes are huge and maybe even existential. It is so hard not to want to try to convince the other person. But, you know, when you think about it, when someone's trying to convince you of something and you're aware of that, you usually just usually just dig in and entrench in your in the position you already had. There's just this human nature that wants to resist. Um, and so once I realized that dynamic and, and read a lot of studies showing how that's true, and again, you know, in the brain scans, you see people just you see their brains just like lighting up um, when they when they hear something that uh, that they that it doesn't correspond to what they already believe. So you know, I just I just learned that as much as I want to try to convince people, the best way to convince them is to not try to convince them. Erica, what's the hardest thing about talking to the other side? Well, I guess I have two Achilles heels, one for each foot. Um, One is the convincing that I just talked about. And the other is the judging. And that's where the contempt comes in. Um, You know, I think it's really, 
it's really easy for me, especially being in a left-wing bubble, to feel like because I'm progressive, I'm, I'm better. It's not that we just disagree. It's that if you are not a fellow progressive, then you must be either ignorant or stupid or gullible or just a bad person. Um, so I realized that I was subtly and not so subtly judging people all the time. And when I finally tuned into that dynamic and was able to let go of that feeling of superiority and self-righteousness, I think that not only did I become more effective at communicating across the divide, but it actually felt just even liberating for me personally. Um, once it started to dissolve, I was aware that it was kind of just having a, a toxic effect on my soul. It was kind of poisoning me, like I had a contempt hangover. Um, and as it started to fade away, I realized I, I was glad that that was gone. I mean, it, it still rears up sometimes, um, but I can, I can recognize it and say, no, that, that's not where I want to go. Just, just get curious and try to understand, like, how did that person get to be who they are and feel what they feel and have the values that they have, even though they're very different than mine? How did that happen? I'm curious. Erica Edelson is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The new book is Beyond Contempt, How Liberals Can Communicate Across the Great Divide. Check out her website, ericaedelson.com. That's last name is spelled E-T-E-L-S-O-N. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Charlie. I'd like to know what you think of Conversations. Write me an email to charlie.dyer at ihubradio.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Charlie Dyer. Charlie Dyer.